I'm Mike Buttle, and this is the fourth programme in my series looking at the Isle of Man Steam Railway. Over the course of the previous three episodes, I included some interviews with a group of people who had great memories of the railways. Due to time constraints, these interviews had to be edited to fit the available programme slots. The material that was left over, though, was quite wonderful, and this episode collects those outtakes together into one extra helping. One of the first people I spoke to was a great friend and former workmate from my time on the trains, driver Paul Rothwell. Here's Paul talking about the locomotive he had charge of at the time of the interview, the Caledonia. This locomotive was bought by the Manx Northern Railway for a very specific purpose. It wasn't relating much to passenger uh, service, but it was bought for the Foxdale Mines workings at the time. Uh, They were in full swing. Manx Northern Railway took control of that branch line and they needed a more powerful locomotive. Uh, the tenders went out, Dubs and Co won the tender and the 060 Caledonia turned up and it was numbered Manx Northern Railway number four. Um, the mine workings didn't last very long and then the, the Snaefell Mountain Railway started work so she was tasked to uh, help build that and she has been to the top of the island. Paul is the last link on the railway staff these days to the old Isle of Man Railway Company. Here he tells the tale of how he came to first join the railway, then leave, and then come back again a few years later. I actually started, Mike, in uh, 1977. What happened was I was on a train going into Douglas and the gatekeeper at Bologna uh, fell ill. So an ambulance was called for him. I continued on into Douglas on the train. When I got into Douglas, Graham Warhurst, who was the operations superintendent at the time, came up to me and said, would I like a job? Uh, Being unemployed at the time, I said, yeah, you know, I'd I'd love one. So I I was shipped out to Bologna, which is at the ferry bridge, given one lesson on how to open the gates and wave the flags. And uh, that was me for the summer in 1977. I made redundant at the end of 1977. So uh, a little bit later, uh, I found out there was a job going on the railway. So I went and uh, asked about it, and I was lucky enough to come back in the early 80s, and I spent six years on the footplate uh, as a fireman in the early 80s. And after that, you took a, a break for a good few years to, to join the fire service, ironically. <laughs> oh, it is a thing about fire, Mike, I think. <laughs> yeah, I'm a frustrated pyromaniac. Yeah, um, fire service, I, I left the railway in 1986, uh, and I got a full-time firefighter's position in 1988. I did 27 years, uh, just over 27 years, all told, in the fire brigade. Was it always your intention to, to go back on the trains when you finished? I never thought about it, actually, un- until I was approached by um, John Smith. I-, I met him in Strand Street one day. Now, John Smith, as we know, used to be the station master at uh, Castletown, and he'd moved into the office, and bumped into me said you know what are you doing these days and I said well they've just retired from the fire service he said do you fancy coming back onto the railway and I said well, yeah you know I wouldn't mind I'll, I'll give it a go uh, and I came back in 2014 and been here ever since. 16 steam locomotives have operated on the Isle of Man during the, the course of the railway history is the one loco you've never driven that you'd love to do so? Oh yes, yes there is. It's got to be on everyone's wish list. I hope that I'd be able to drive the Manon number 16. To me, uh, she was the ultimate steam engine. 
unfortunately I've never seen it in steam it's always either been in the museum um, at the moment it's out and it's having a, a survey to see if it can be returned to traffic but for what that local was built for, I'd love to have a big train going out of Douglas. All about power, wasn't it? Yeah. All about oh, power. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I'm one up on you there because I can remember as a youngster going into Douglas, uh, sat in the corner of the cab of the man with, with my grandfather driving, so yes. you've got that experience to look forward to. <laughs> Thanks very much, Paul. Great to catch up with Paul on the Caledonia. The station at Port Erin is one of my earliest memories. We used to live in Martin's Bank House, and the view from our front room window was out over the railway yard and the platforms. Many a happy hour was spent watching the trains come in and out, particularly if my dad and my grandfather were driving them. I can vividly remember hundreds of tourists coming off each train during the summer and heading in a long line towards the promenade and the beach. Howard Quayle's memories of the railways were of Douglas Station and the once busy goods yard. It had gone over to becoming a delivery depot towards the mid-60s. Yes, uh, the goods yard itself are long since gone. Um, The actual warehouse... I worked for a company many years ago in the 1970s, uh, Keith Staines Transport, and he had that facility for storage. He used to do all the craft cheese deliveries, and he also used that part of the yard to store the wagons. Um, The building has long since gone, but that was a regular feature down here uh, on the transport of goods to and from Douglas and Rowney Island. Howard also reminded me of the almost comical attempt during the time the railways were leased to Lord Ailsa during 1967 and 68 to introduce container traffic to the island. Uh, the idea at the time was good. Container traffic was in its infancy on the island. The Ron Agency was operating a facility from Castletown. But if you look at it in today's perspective, where they were craned off the vessel... There was a crane in Castletown Station loading them onto trucks, onto carriages. There was a crane in Douglas taking them off. And that was only for a journey of some seven miles. So they had triple handling. And then the repeat would have to be to take them back again to Castletown to put them on the ship. So it goes without saying it didn't, uh, it didn't last too long. And more often than not, I believe it would be the same crane at the start of the journey would finish off with them at the end of it. Probably did, probably did. That beat them into Douglas. I've seen the railways running and the steam trains pulling the carriages, etc., with the vans on, the round-roof vans, but also 20-ton equivalent containers. And the containers had to be put into well wagons so that they could negotiate the tunnels and the bridges on the way down to Castletown. Fantastic. Days gone by, right enough. We also chatted about Glen Willen and the famous Sunday school picnics. I asked Howard if he went to the Glen by coach or train, and she had some memories of these grand days out. Coach. Um, a lot did go by train, but we were always in the Douglas area. We would go by coach. The coaches would pull up outside the church, and we'd all jump on there and travel around the island and then go down to Willen, Glen Willen for our, our afternoon teas. And I don't know if it's the, uh, the same for you as it was for, for us down south going up to Glen Willen on a Sunday school picnic, but there'd be streamers out the side of the coach on the way. Uh-huh. Oh, that's exactly the same. The open windows and uh, well, streamers and bunting and everything hanging out the windows as we went along. Howard Quayle, reminiscing about Glen Willen. My next conversation was a real treat in the company of Ned Kenyuk, a fantastic storyteller with some great yarns about the old days of the railways around the St John's area and the long-closed Foxdale line. 
Oh, I remember trains going to Foxtel. They steamed up, but it, they freewheeled all the way down. And them days, you know, the train would... Well, you know, the train would stop, request stop. And they let me off. I do remember um, uh, travelling on that. We used the railway line as a thoroughfare. You know, that was the quickest way to get to Lower Foxtel, was up the Foxtel line. There was um, a station master in Peel called Joe Mulcreast, and he lived on the corner of the Patrick Road. And he had a son called Cyril Mulcreast, and he went on to be, you probably know Cyril, he was station master in Union Mills, and everybody said what wonderful gardens he had along the track in Union Mills. Now, them people took a pride in their job. Ned Kennick, remembering Cyril Mulcreast. Someone else who can recall the Union Mills station master is former MHK David Cretney. And then, you know, latterly I've learnt about all Cyril had to do with Union Mills and uh, how he was the last station master here. And uh, he was a great man and uh, there have been so many characters around the railways as well. Another great character from the old railway days was the St John's station master George Crellin. George ran his empire almost single-handed by the mid-1960s and could often be seen pedalling his trusty bicycle at great speed in between the station office and the points box. Now others may refer to that building as the signal box, but to George Crellin, and therefore written into Isle of Man Railway folklore, it was always the points box. No trace of it, or indeed almost anything else at the junction at St John's remains now. Here's Ned again talking about George Crellin and the water supply to the station, and then a little bit about the Railway Cup football competition. Stephen Lace tell me they got towed off once because they pulled into the railway station and went to fill up water from the tank that was in the station. And George came out and saw them. And Stephen said he was jumping up and down that we should have filled up with the tank that was up on the Foxtel line. There was a tank where the, where the Foxtel line crosses the, the Douglas line. There was a water tank there. Now, that water was fed mile and a half up the Foxtel line and it came off Slewellian, it came off my father's farm. They took the water off the farm and they, they channeled that water all the way down and built a tank uh, where the Foxtel line crossed the Peel Douglas line. And George Crellin was annoyed that they used the tank on the railway yard at St John's because they had to pay for that water. And the, what the water they got off the Foxtel line was for nothing. <laughs> now then, there's just been a cup final played football, the Railway Cup. They, have you ever seen that cup? Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's, a, it's a huge cup, isn't it? Now that part of the condition that that cup was prevented, that they played the cup final that could be accessed by the train. With living on a farm overlooking the Foxdale Valley, Ned has great memories of growing up in that area, including knowing exactly where the waterfall halt was on the old Foxdale line. That was like the end of our garden. When I was going to Sunday school in Lower Foxdale, the, the sports were held in the field behind. The railway, the railway station was a wooden hut. <laughs> it, it, it would hold four people maybe, uh, but that was waterfall halt. A number of railway staff members have been killed by passing trains or shunting accidents. There have been other fatalities too through the years. Riding unofficially, taking a lift home from school by riding on an open wagon, one poor lad fell off. There was a fellow killed, my father said. There was a, one of his schoolmates was killed. The trains that were leaving Foxtel with a, a load of ore going into Peel, they weren't steaming. It was all downhill, so they just knocked the brake off and freewheeled down to St John's. And the school was very often being emptied when this train was leaving for Peel. And some of those that were living further down were jumping on the carriages and jumping off. It wasn't travelling very fast, obviously, 
but one of these lads got his foot caught in the contraption on the back of the carriage and he was dragged all the way to St John's and killed. One of the interviews I was particularly looking forward to doing for this series was with Jeff Kelly. I asked Jeff if it was always his intention to work on the trains. Yes and no. I, I wanted to work on the trains, but I was they went and closed it, didn't they? So uh, I had to wait. And I was working at Ballacrane Farm for a couple of years before deciding to go and apply for a job at um, to Max Recall, who was a manager of the Victorian Steam Railway at that time. Did you uh, ever get out on the footplate on the Peel and Ramsey lines at all? Uh, yes. Um, there was a special train. It was the day that Port Erin line opened right through to Port Erin. I think it was the 3rd of June or something like that, of 68. And there was a special train with the saloons and number 8 and George Callan arranged for me to have a footplate trip on that engine with Huey and Percy. And where was that going? Ramsey. OK. It didn't come back, though, so I had to find my own way back. <laughs> Jeff ended up being senior driver on the railway. To be a driver, you must complete a few years as a fireman. I asked Jeff how long it took to make the leap up the ladder. I suppose it be about three years, between three and four years, but then I had uh, a year's firing, season firing with Ernie Evans, who was a... Uh, retired British Rail locomotive inspector from crew and he taught me an awful lot about it, about the engines and that. He's very good. Jeff Kelly also had some fantastic memories of past railwaymen, some of the real characters from a time when rail travel was all over the island. Tom Convig and Eric Kelly, who were two fitters. Um, Eddie Quiggan, who was the blacksmith. And then there was the Donald Shaw, who was the locomotive superintendent at that time. Uh, he was a very fair man. I got on well with him. Some didn't. Um, what about some of the old drivers? Uh, well, there was Huey and Percy. Huey Duff, Percy Kane. Um, they were the Ramsey men, and they usually stuck together. But I had a season with Percy on number 11, and that was an education. It must have really was. He started telling a story, and he was so very quietly spoken that you were bending down to listen to him but while he was telling the story the, the train would be getting slower and slower <laughs> and it was only when the story finished I said move on a bit Percy and he would just stick the regulator over a bit more to get and, and you were on the locomotive for the last Royal Train in 1972 can you remember which engine it was and do you remember anything about the preparations for the and the actual day? Uh, 72 would be when the Queen travelled um, Yes, yeah, so far it was. The train was made up of what forty-five, F forty-five, sorry, F thirty-five, F thirty-six, and F forty-six. Um, Robert Tunnicliffe was the guard on that, and Bobby Cowan was the other guard. Roger Webster was station master, Douglas, and uh, there was the trains were all painted up and done up, and they were really nice looking when it was, but. When the train got to Douglas, it was deserted. The security was so ridiculous. Nobody got near the place. And yet, if somebody had decided to do anything, all they had to do was go to the rock cutting, and they could be about three yards away from the Queen. Nothing happened. But anyway, there was nobody there to meet us, so we arrived there to an empty station. <laughs> Can you remember which engine you had and who was on with you? Uh, John Elkin was the driver um, on number 13. And I always remember that morning, he, while cleaning the engine, 
he bent down to pick up cotton waste or something and he injured his back so he was in agony all the time that day and it plagued him for the rest of his life that back injury from the Queen's visit The Royal Visit in 1972 The steam railway now is just really associated with tourism with images of highly polished locomotives and shining copper and brass in the glorious Manx summer sunshine but let's not forget that until the mid-1960s it operated all year round and sometimes bleak weather and snow could be encountered. This was especially problematic on the Ramsey line between St Germans and Michael. The locomotive Caledonia was usually tasked with snow clearing duties and a large plough was fitted to the front to deal with the snow drifts. Here's Stephen Lace. Oh absolutely, in the 50s we had quite a few few winters and there's um, just south of St Germans there's the Logidoo farm bridges, there's two in there and quite a deep cotton in between. Used to fill the top. It's like it wasn't there. And the boys come out. They have the cali, and uh, they they dig a little bit of a trench across the snow to sort of move. And then the cali would go for it, but it didn't charge the drifts because A.J. Kane used to drive it. And uh, he said, I was talking to him in later years because he was a little lad then, like, and he he said he just kind of leaned into it. Because if you hit it too hard, you'd be off the rails. Mm. He said, you just didn't have the weight, you know, to really charge it, sort of thing. Like, and they said there'd be there'd be a couple of days, you know, it come to it. And one occasion, we built a big a snowman in between on, on the tracks at St Germans. Great big snowman. It was probably ten foot high. And then eventually the boys come, got got through the bridge at Lurgy Do and come along and the gates are open and they come through, straight through our snowman, everywhere, everything brilliant. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, quite a, quite a few occasions, you know, it it was quite bad out here at that time, like, but uh, you know, it it was a wonderful sight. Clearing the snow. And the snowmen, as it happens, with the locomotive Caledonia. There would be section of the railways both open and closed where bad weather would necessitate some makeshift protection being put in place for the driver and fireman. The crews could be quite inventive as to what they would use. I asked Stephen to remind me about what might be in place. Oh, just the dodgers. This I keep saying to these boys, oh, you, you know, you got the dodgers tied the roof now. You wouldn't have had them tied the roof out of here, believe me. <laughs> so just for the benefit of uh, people who don't know what the dodgers are, just, just explain uh, what exactly they are. It was a bit of canvas on the side of the cab, which you could tie down. We also had what they called a dodger as well, and uh, that was separate. We kind of attached that to the top of the cab. So the the original, the first dodgers just covered half the the cab entrance, but the old, the big dodger, you could drop it right down, top to bottom. We also had a wooden door you could put in in between the the handrails as well. But out here, you needed it. You really did need it. You know, it's it's bleak at times. Wind coming straight in off the Irish Sea. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yes, absolutely. No end to it. Battling snow and wind on the footplate. At its peak, the steam railway had over 45 miles of three-foot gauge track to maintain. Some places were reasonably accessible to the track workers, but others were not. Here's former railwayman Ian Watson. Well, funnily enough, when I joined in 1970, we were using a, an ex-fire um, brigade um, support uh, wagon uh, and it was a covered wagon uh, including the bell and um, we used to sit in the back of this wagon get brought to wherever we were working co- complete with tools and sleepers and fence posts wherever we were using and um, 
we'd be in the back of this wagon with all this equipment. Uh, hate to think about it these days, but that's how we did it. Then when we got to the jobs, the nearest point that we could get to the jobs, it was either by uh, our good neighbours' farmers or alongside the road that we could offload onto what was a flat-topped wooden bogey. And that was how we transported a lot of the, the equipment there, or rails even, anything that needed to bring into the job, even lunch bags. But, um, yeah, that was that was our method of getting to the job. The picture painted by Ian Watson of the track repair gangs turning up on site in an old ex-fire brigade wagon, complete with bell, brings a smile. But the work was hard and carried out in all weathers, fine or foul. The track gangs were organised into sections to cover the three operating lines. I can remember back to my, when my father was still working on it, because uh, he worked there from the early 60s, that they had three-mile sections, or lengths as they called them, uh, and at one time it was a one man per mile, but as time went on and finances, you know, were a lot harder, it came down to two men per three mile, and that's that went on till I actually left in 1975 when the the railway was only running to from Castletown to uh, Port Erin because I I just had a young family I had to. You know, I had to uh, keep the money coming in. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but, yeah, the the the, the uh, sections were... There was 15 sections altogether, starting in Douglas, 1 to 4, Peel Line, uh, 1 to 9, which is 5 to, uh, to 9, really, but uh, part of the Douglas section was in, in section 1, and then 10 to... to 14 was the uh, Ramsey line. I've got to try and keep remembering where they all were. But So they were all sectionalised and those men were dedicated to that particular length that they were on. Doug Kenyuk worked on the North Line for a time on the railway delivery lorry. I spent one summer delivering parcels around Michael Village uh, because lots of stuff was moved around by the train in those days. In fact, the train was originally train line was originally set up as a means of transporting produce from the farmers into the towns. But I, I would be delivering things like cases of strawberry jam from Russian Abbey and would take them to the local shops in Michael. Items for a longer distance would be picked up by the, the lorries from Glenwillen with Bill Keg in charge. And, that, of course, Glenwillen was owned by the railway, so they, they used to uh, uh, participate in the delivery of stuff from the station to other places. From delivering parcels, Doug was eventually to become the owner of the old station building at Sulby Glen. It was only a small station with just a single line in the siding, but during the Second World War, it had the busiest ticket office outside of Douglas. It was, and it's got a very long platform. I think they used to get about nine or ten carriages on it, I think. And it was very fortuitous because it was built in 1910, long before the opening of Jerby Airfield. And when Jerby Airfield was up and running, it was the, the, the airmen used to take the train into, into Douglas and it was really busy, people coming and going all the time. And along with the, uh, then the visitors who came and used it, there'd be loads of uh, people using this station, yeah, hundreds. Doug's father, Louis, worked as a ganger on the Ramsey line. Part of the job involved cutting the grass verges each side of the line. Sometimes the trackside could go on fire from hot ash and cinder escaping from the engine steaming hard on the gradients. Uh, the, other, the other thing that uh, uh, 
uh, I can remember are the trackside fires, which I think still happens with the current uh, steam railway down down the south. But the trackside fires were quite common uh, in the back end, particularly corn fires and and barley and God knows what would go up, usually between um, Glenmore and Devil's Elbow because you're going uphill there and they would be stoking up and there'd be lots of sparks coming out. And it was quite fortuitous because my father was in the fire service, so he didn't even have to go home and he could just join them and and get his money that way. (laughs) It was a real pleasure talking to Doug and hearing memories of his father. Another story was concerning the tipping of loco ash and clinker at Gobbadagan. And one other thing that I remember, although I, I never actually witnessed it, it's what he used to call the donkey's back over at Linnig. And they used to bring out all the clinker that was accumulated during the year from the engines. They'd bring it out and then bolster up the line because it kept slipping, slipping down. And I think uh, I was talking to the lads doing the line the other day who do the repairs... It's about six foot lower now. It's really dropped. So that was a, an annual maintenance that needed doing. I walk on the old Ramsey line a couple of times a year and can confirm that the old track bed is now a lot lower than it was when it had rails and sleepers on it. One day the bank will just slip into the sea. At Balaquine Bridge, Louis Kenyig would sometimes find chuffs nesting. Every year there used to be chuffs nests in what he called County Bridge over at Balaquine on the Peel Road. Now, of course, it's just a tunnel, so they can't get in there, but there used to be chuffs there every year, which was really interesting. Chuffs at Balaquine. Appropriate, really. My interest in the Isle of Man steam railway has lasted a lifetime now, but I guess it was brought about by a long-standing family connection, a connection that went back over 120 years. During the 1970s to the late 1980s, I was proud to be a fourth-generation Manx railwayman, and even after leaving the railway in 1989, I followed events on it with more than just a passing interest. During the railway centenary year in 1973, my grandfather travelled as guest of the company on the celebratory train. Manx Radio was on hand to record the event then, and caught him speaking about his past and how it all started at the Coolbane Gatehouse, where as a youngster he used to sit on the gates to watch the trains go by. One day I'll drive one of those engines, he'd say. And he did, retiring as senior driver at the grand old age of 68. What a legend. Here's that Manx Radio recording. I come first to be a driver in 1927. And uh, can you tell us a little about uh, what's involved in learning to drive an engine? Well, uh, the main thing is uh, to have a quick reaction on anything that comes in your way. Did you have any sort of basic training before you went on the Oh, yes, place? I had uh, 10 years firing and ten year, uh, three years cleaning. Before I'd become a fireman. My father was a player before me, and uh, we were at the Kuban Gatehouse in Sulby, and uh, that brought me to the railway. I was 52 years altogether yeah. with uh, broken time after my retirement. I'd done two summers. Yeah. And did the locomotives change much over the years? Were they modified or anything like that? Yes, they were modified. Uh, the, uh, some engines had uh, new boilers and bigger tanks for them, and uh, they're much better than uh, the smaller ones. Well, in closing, I believe there's uh, an amusing story to do with Buttles Ducks. Can you tell us a little about this? Yes. Uh, every time I come into Port Eden, I was keeping ducks down in Apple Park here. And every time I come in, the ducks would come up to meet me to go down and feed them. 
and uh, many people, my, my ducks, and uh, there's many, many photographs taken of them. What about the painting? Oh, uh, Mr. Hoggett, he painted a picture of the ducks, and I believe there is still one in London. Did you have the ducks trained to do this or what? No, no, the... Uh, they got that used to me going down that they were coming to meet me in the finish. I hope you've enjoyed this series. It's been somewhat of a labour of love, and I hope that at least some of that love has shone through. Here's to the Isle of Man Steam Railway, and thanks for listening. (laughs) 